the incomparable. Number 326, November 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're here for an edition of, I guess you could call this Old Movie Club. Steve Lutz isn't here to actually say movie club but it is it's a movie from 1983 so it's not super old and uh this came up because uh, the the gentleman who usually brings us the old movies philip michaels was on twitter talking about how he thinks that uh the right stuff from 1983 was an underappreciated film is that right phil did i do that accurately that is that is correct um it, i i it's it's not the best film of the 1980s because that's a decade that uh, raging bull came out in depending on how you want to start counting your 1980s and your amadeuses but uh i think right stuff is is easily one of the if not top five, top ten movies of the 1980s, and and you never hear about it. You never really hear people uh, uh, gassing on about it. And I guess that changes tonight. That's that's, that's right. Now we're gonna we're gonna put it right by talking about this classic based on the uh, the book by Tom Wolfe about test pilots at the beginning of the space age. So, in addition to Mr. Philip Michaels joining us to have a conversation about this film, Andy Anatko. Hello. I don't want to make everybody feel old, but I just did a little search and. Uh, the distance between today and the release date of The Right Stuff is almost the same as the distance between The Right Stuff and It's a Wonderful Life. So it is kind of <laughs> – I, I would consider it an old movie at this old point. Movie. Anybody who is not our age, it's an old movie. Uh, Dan Morin's also here. Hi, Dan. Hello. Uh, I think I'm not the youngest person on this panel, which is pretty good for me. So I'll take that. Yeah, you are, you're definitely not. Uh, perhaps the oldest person on the panel, but we love him. Hey, hey, hey. It's uh, it's it's Dr. Drang. Welcome back. Well, hello. Uh, I don't want anything to put this podcast in a bad light. I'm mm-hmm. talking about keeping our pants zipped and our wicks dry. Yeah, gentlemen, that's good. Somebody had to somebody had to have that uh, story, but we'll get to it. And uh, yes, the youngest member of the podcast uh, because he was uh, born uh, uh, in the 80s after this movie was made. It's Stephen Hackett, my co-host from the Space Podcast Liftoff. Hi, Stephen. Hey, yeah, this movie came out three years before I was born, so uh, you know, if you old guys need to kick off early and, and go to bed, we can uh, we can carry on. Dan right. and I have this covered. Woot! Old movie club. Can can I send a personal message to all the listeners? If right now you're sort of pounding the dashboard of your car, wondering why nobody in the introduction said, "Come on, Jason, let's solve your problems and light this candle," I'm just as surprised and disappointed mm-hmm. as all of you. <laughs> I I thought that I was being the magnanimous and saying, "I'm going to." I'm I'm only the second person called. I'm sure that someone has that on an X card. They've been rehearsing that line, so it had to be. We got it out of the way. We've cleared that bit. We can move forward. So anyway, uh, we're going to talk about the right stuff. I I, I want to start with just pointing out glenn shepherd just two of the names inextricably connected to the american astronauts depicted in the right stuff also quaid harris and henrickson because there's a guy named glenn who isn't playing john glenn and there's a guy named shepherd who's not playing alan shepherd it's very confusing <laughs> to me i kept thinking oh it's it's scott glenn he's not john glenn he's not he's gordon cooper it's totally different you also have Ed Harris not playing who he plays in Apollo 13. No, he's so not like Ed Harris is, right. is, or Two guys, like what, what's what's happening? <laughs> two guys in NASA, one space program. A lot, a, a lot of characters who get played by multiple people in, in other films, too. 
Like I or in other, I was thinking about how I had seen from the Earth to the Moon, and a lot yeah. of these characters obviously exist there too, but all played by different actors who I have like linked with those people now. I think there may even be a couple actors in common between them playing different parts, and that's also strange. And uh, so uh, my wife and I were watching this last night, and I, I finished it today because it's three hours long. So we didn't. It's we, a very long we, movie. We, we ran. It's, it's an long. epic. It is an epic, and we we need to talk about that. But she was saying, you know, the second half. You know what I really remember about that? I don't remember whole lot i remember uh i remember the apollo one accident and i'm like that was in the from the earth to the moon that's not in the right stuff it's a totally different <laughs> don't movie even, don't even get to that it's like mentioned as an aside at the end i kept waiting for it and when they rescue matt damon at the end of the movie <laughs> that's it, right. is, it is great stuff. it is the be- i i think uh work for somebody who wants to do a supercut is all space movies just edit them all together and that's one big long movie set in space. When Alan Shepard destroys the asteroid with the nuclear weapon <laughs> yep. to save Earth, fantastic! Oh, it's the Aerosmith good. song that really brings it home for me, it, though. It's Alan Shepard and Sam Shepard. They do it together. Mm. You see, but Sam Shepard is played by someone else, though. It's oh very my! <laughs> so one of the funny things. So it, it is an epic. It's a three-hour-long movie, and I think one of the it, you 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 find out very quickly when you watch it or or rewatch it the the pacing the focus there are a lot of different characters um i i could argue that there are two movies here and they're just juxtaposed against each other we spend the first 25 minutes this was the other thing my wife remembered before we started she was like i just remember a whole lot of chuck yeager and i was like yeah and it's the first we stopped when we when we left the chuck yeager story for the first time it was 25 minutes into the movie so when you when you, when you go in thinking oh this is going to be about the astronauts it's like no, it's about the test pilots and astronauts, and we spend a lot of time with Chuck Yeager, and we keep going back to Chuck Yeager, and his story is kind of juxtaposed with the story of of the original seven astronauts. So I, th- I think that's one of the interesting things about it is it takes its time. It spends time with characters who, you know, you could have gotten this down uh, a half hour or 45 minutes easily by taking out Chuck Yeager. I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm saying... Oh, no, you, sh- you should absolutely not But I'm that. saying no, that. That, that to tell the story in this epic fashion, it, it, that's why it's a three-hour movie, is because you need to be able to spend 45 minutes of it with one of the guys who's not even one of the astronauts because the story is that big and there's so many characters in it. Well, and as it is, uh, a few of the astronauts basically get nothing. Yeah. You know, w- yeah. Wally Shira is an extra yeah. in yep. this yep. movie. Lance Henriksen. <laughs> I know, Lance yeah. Henriksen. Scott Carpenter, yeah. Carpenter, yeah. yes. And Scott, if you've read the um if you've read the books, there's a, a very large chunk of the book uh uh devoted to Scott Carpenter's uh, mission in the Mercury program and that mm-hmm. that is totally cut out. Yeah, it's just gone. Well, because it's it's hard to it's it's hard to do Gordon Cooper and Scott Carpenter and tell the story of well they kind of either effed up or the system did not put them in a position where they could possibly succeed. You have to put them either in extreme danger and then they pull their way out of it, showing steely-eyed determination, uh, or you find out that the wife and the husband were really about to just break everything, <laughs> break the entire marriage apart, uh, if not for the fact that they wanted to keep their, their health insurance funded by NASA. Just since you uh, uh, mentioned the, the, the Chuck Yeager uh, part, I, I, I think it's very interesting because I think the best thing about this movie is what it has to say about myth-making. And um, the theme that the, the, the movie goes back to, um, and this is very much uh, 
the 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 organ that Philip Kaufman, the director, uh, keeps grinding in the movie is that they, everyone was saying, "Oh, these are the the seven greatest pilots ever," and really there was this other great pilot who didn't fit the mold, um, didn't have the the college education or the uh, uh, the 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 stable family life background, and and was kind of a wise ass who they they keep out of the program in the movie, and I. I, I I find it really interesting um, the way that uh, they they use the press in the movie to, to portray the astronauts one way when we, the audience, see that something completely different is going on. And I, I, I really think that the, um, uh, the Chuck Yeager character is um, – as much as you can have an integral character in a in an ensemble piece like this, he is the he is the main focus of the movie, and I think it's much the movie's um, what makes the movie so interesting. And it, it might be the reason that of all the performances in the movie, I believe Sam Shepard's was the only that only one that uh, was graced with an Oscar nomination. Not yep. that that's an indicator of quality, but nope, uh, absolutely right. It, it's interesting that you point out that. We're, we have this this movie about the space program, and we spend the first half hour not talking about the space program, but rather guys flying jets in uh, one of the most terrible parts of California you can actually go mm-hmm. to. <laughs> um, and uh, I, that's a very deliberate choice uh, by the director, and it wasn't a popular one because um, William Goldman, I think, wrote the first draft of the um, of the Right Stuff screenplay, and he hated this movie, and he hated working with Philip Kaufman, and and and. And, and quit the uh, quit the movie outright. So, um, uh, and one of the reasons that he cited is he didn't like the fact that it it held up Chuck Yeager as this uh, this uh, paragon while making the other guys look like lucky stiffs who just sort of stumbled into it. I don't know about that. I, I, what I've always liked oh, about I, I don't necessarily disagree agree with that criticism, but it, it's it's the criticism he made. But anyhow, I I'm done talking. I, I was just going to say that I, I I like the I like the way that. Um, you, you name a book and a movie the right stuff. It's obviously something that is so vague, but it tries to explain something that you understand as soon as it's put in front of you. And I think that the some of the most powerful parts of the movie do come during that the, during that first half hour when you're talking about these people who are fighting really, really hard to get into this place where you're doing this job where you will watch people die. And your wives will basically always know what here's what a, here's what a what a siren means. It doesn't mean that someone that a police officer is going to turn off a a, a fire alarm uh, at a store. It means that's one of your one of your either your husband or one of your friend's husbands has just died. Uh, and this is something that uh, a job that very few people are mentally capable of doing. Uh, and although, of course, it was a, a lot of discussion between the difference between Chuck Yeager, someone who was wasn't really known, of course, uh, to history before uh, uh, before uh, Tom Wolfe uh, featured him in the book. Obviously, he, obviously he, uh, he he was a uh, first to break the sound barrier, but he was in that book of aviation records. He certainly wasn't a cultural figure. Um you also have these other astronauts who are doing just as much work to get into the space to get into the space program to fly in these absolutely untested. There was no book whatsoever yeah. for any of these spacecraft. Uh, I mean, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, it, the reason why you needed test pilots is because they are used to having. There is nobody who can tell you anything about wh- how this thing handles. This is the first time we've we've built and, fl- and and put one of these into flight, so we have no idea if we've built it right or wrong so you have to be as the quote from uh, i think was a uh, 
Deke Slayton's uh, autobiography is like the difference between a test pilot and a regular pilot is that a test pilot gets into a bad situation and says, I got third, I got 30, so I'm going to crash in 30 seconds. I got to eject. A test pilot says, I got 30 seconds. I bet I can still save this. So it's all, all of them, even when they do that, that collective mutiny against NASA saying that, no, 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 no. You're not going to try to bully us into doing what you want by, by pulling our flight assignments. You either, <laughs> you're going to get, you got, you got all of your PR invested in these, uh, us as seven heroes. If you want to find seven other heroes, you're welcome to it, but we're sticking together and fighting to, to, to run this, th- this thing the way that we want to run it. So it really, again, the, the right stuff. What is it that makes you, push past all that bs to 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 focus on the on the task of getting killed uh at at at, at an altitude of 60 miles so the movie starts after a montage of four by three grainy uh film footage we end up with the first shot and this goes to what what who these people are and what their job is and what andy was saying the it is a a shock wake up of a woman who is basically going to be told that her husband just died in a fiery plane crash. That's where this is. That's where this movie starts. <laughs> and narrated by the band's Levon Helm, you should point out. Okay. Yeah, he's the he's the um, uh, Ridley. He's, uh, he's, he's the Ridley Jack, yeah. Jack Ridley. Yeah. Okay. They say there's a demon in the sky. That's, <laughs> that's right. That's him. Yeah. Out there past Mach two. Um, and then we see a man on a horse in the desert, very westerny. Except this man is Chuck Yeager. Jason, um, does the horse have a name? It. Uh, <laughs> I, we can ask Chuck Yeager. Um, he. Uh, he's on Twitter. He's he's in the he's in the desert, and uh, it, we're out in, as Phil said, kind of a really unpleasant uh, part of California. This is the future Edwards Air Force Base. You may know that is where the space shuttle landed before it started landing back in in Florida. And there's not a lot out there. And was a test pilot range. There's a there's a bar that uh, that people go to, and there are a bunch of pictures up behind the bar, and this is one of the lessons we learned very quickly. <laughs> what do you have to do to get your picture up there? The answer is die. If you die, we'll put your... That is the, that is the graveyard. That is the memorial to all of the dead pilots at the, uh, at the test facility. Um, so that, that's how we start this movie. And, I, and, and I'm interested in what people have to say about this whole, whole part of the movie. I, I wanted to note one thing, which is I appreciated the direction in this movie. You know, movie bars oftentimes feel like, I don't know, fake and not mm. places where people have been drinking a lot. And this, this movie bar, even in the daytime, the people who are in that bar, it, I, they feel drunk to me. And I, I kind of appreciated that. It's like, they're, they're, they're drunk. They're drinking. And they're, they feel that way. As a man who's um, had a drink or two in a uh, bar in California's high desert. <laughs> accurate. <laughs> this is, it feels it feels like the sort of bar that in modern times would have no windows and a lot of contractor trucks parked outside at 2 p.m. Yeah, it's uh, it's they're they're really drinking there. So this is this is the bleak landscape of the test pilot. It's not just that they're they're cowboys. I mean, I, I think that the, that's an intentional parallel here. These are these are special kinds of people who are pushing the limits and have a certain attitude about life that allows them to be capable of of flying these untested uh, aircraft and and putting their lives in their own hands. I, I like also that we're drawing a distinction here between some of the pilots obviously are military pilots and some of them are civilian pilots because in the opening we get this one pilot who is you know 
Uh, they want him to go up and break the sound barrier, and he says he'll do it for $150,000. Right. Um, so like, William, William Russ, who uh, I will always think of as the dad on Boy Meets World, but... Um, yeah, also here. Two different stripes, too, because you have the people who are sort of here, they're, you know, here and trying to make some money off it. And then as they point out, when Jaeger says he'll do it, they're paying him like less than 300 bucks a month. Well, he said, yeah, you're already paying me, right? The Air Force is already paying me. So, all right. He just wants to fly. He just wants to ride. Yeah. 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 Before we leave the Happy Bottom Riding Club, there's an important (laughs) character that comes in early, uh, at the funeral. And it's the man in black, the Grim Reaper, the Angel of Death, who shows up repeatedly throughout the movie and you know sings the song at the funeral and always ends up after the funeral back at the bar has a beer and then and then leaves and yeah, i love that i love that character throughout the movie well that is the great royal dano and I, I had a note in here about him being the specter of death too. So like, because he's uh, he does he shows up with a bunch of the explosion, the rocket explosions too. Yeah. I think I, there's a, there's a structure to all of this where there's so many characters that they don't really have names and they don't really have. They never, there's never a line where they explain this person is with the chaplain's office. He is a captain. His job mm-hmm. is this, and he is he's more like uh, almost like an imaginary character. And uh, for instance, like uh, uh, the the one the, the one member of the press corps that's allowed to talk. And not be part of the chorus. Right, it fills the role of all the press. Jeff Goldblum and Harry she- uh, and Harry <laughs> Shearer, the one, one of the best comedy teams I in any. Mo- I, I love this movie. <laughs> Great for them. Again, no, no one, no one no, knows. Actually, they, they don't. They don't. <laughs> yeah, we'll they, they don't. They don't even have any. I'm, I'm actually. I'm looking at the IMDb page. They're act, they're actual uh, in, the, in the credits. They're listed as recruiter and recruiter, not even recruiter one or recruiter two, <laughs> because they they are comp- they are compressed together from like eight. 18 different people who had 40 different roles in in, the, in putting this thing together but you don't all you have to do is simply present a really iconoclastic new character and we know exactly where they fit into the machinery of the story it's just such a brilliant way you got three hours which sounds like a lot of time until you realize that you've got 12 hours worth of story you need to tell effectively before you get to the cool shots of rockets going off my my favorite thing about that minister character that drang drang mentioned is um at one point in the movie, they, they've jumped ahead, and Alan Shepard's going up in the rocket, and he's there in Cape Canaveral. Yeah. And what yeah. what is this? Is he the only minister allowed to appear at, at <laughs> rocket launches? Well, it's also wrong because he's Air Force, yeah. and Shepard was Navy. Exactly. He doesn't belong there. No, but he shows up but because he's, he's anyway. the angel of death. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> also, if, if if my if my job were to, to come up and, and tell, I'm sorry, your husband's dead. I might not dress in all black i might consider a tie that's maybe even like a a dark red or something yeah the thing that jumps out at me in these early bar scenes is sort of how low-key all of it is so we have the slick who like dan said demands the money and chuck says well the air force already pays me and like so they just assign him this job just in like an open bar like people can hear him and you can imagine this scene being set today, right? This would be like an underground security clearance bunker and no one knows what's happening. And said they're, they're set a bar drinking beer saying, yeah, we're going to go break the sound barrier tomorrow. Like the, it's very informal and casual. And I think that reinforces like the cowboy picture the movie tries to paint. Right. Yeah. They're also on the frontier, right? They're on the edge of us pushing the envelope exactly. as they keep saying. So there is definitely like an un, un, undiscovered country, uncharted frontier there. So. And Chuck I, I Yeager, like such a cowboy. That on the ride home from the bar, he is knocked. He like hits a tree and and falls off his horse, and breaks his ribs. 
His wife, there's a, you know, his wife comes Ra- to, racing, Racing his wife banter. on horseback across yep. the desert. Oh, my God. Do you want to be Chuck Yeager or do you want to be Chuck <laughs> Yeager? Yeah, well, I mean, there, and there's a whole thing with with his wife in the bar and they banter. And then the, then there's a girl in the bar who, who uh, tries to chat with him. And they point out that that lady that he's going after is his wife. And, and, uh, and, we, and we this kinda, is part of their elaborate foreplay. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> but he breaks his ribs or he cracks his ribs and it's very bad. So, oh, no, what's he going to do? He tries to hide it because he really, really wants the opportunity <laughs> to, uh, to do that, to be the guy to break the sound barrier. And and so uh, you know he ends up uh, t- pulling a guy aside, and they they cut they just the guy just takes the broom from a janitor and saws the end off of it and puts it in his jacket and hands it to Yeager. Well, now he does measure it first. He does with his, with his forearm. Yeah, but it's pretty funny that he's just like I'm just gonna lay this down and just zzz, 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 there it is. I got, <laughs> the, I got the reaction shot of the janitor is priceless no. when he hands it back the broom. And it's all okay. okay I'll I guess I could sweep with this, with this little short mm. broom now. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty funny. But and then so, so you know what happens? Chuck Yeager goes up there, and uh, you know the, the, we've been set up with all these failures. That that uh, there is that uh, demon that's uh, out there at the sound barrier. But we hear the first sonic boom, which everybody down on the ground, or the first sonic boom that wasn't like you know a crack of a whip or something from an aircraft, and uh, everybody looks like well he's dead <laughs> on the ground, <laughs> but he's not. He's flying around, and you know that that's our twenty five minutes with uh, with Chuck Yeager. He breaks the sound barrier and. <laughs> course I, I think there might be something wrong with this here mock meter it's start going it's about it's above three right now i don't know they all know <laughs> that if you break the sound barrier you have bought the sound barrier <laughs> shame really well the the and the best part of that scene because the, the this again is is a sign of the 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 script writing where they don't do really a lot of explaining them they just sort of drop you in um they have the 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 publicity man who's who's going to call all the papers and uh and and the the air force man says oh no, no, no. you can't do that because the russians might hear you the russians they're our allies <laughs> yeah and this is the explanation for why nobody knows chuck yeager yeah, exactly. It's done. It's very compact. It's very economical. But mm-hmm. that's the reason why he's not known. He's not a hero because there was no publicity then. It's it's a weird thing to say about a movie that's three hours, but there is some really uh, compact storytelling exactly. that goes yeah. on in this movie. <laughs> Six years later, um, and we see uh, Gordon Cooper, who is uh, who is who is heading to uh, heading to uh, Edwards Air Force Base, which is now I think changed its name by the by this time in Play, history. Played by a fresh out of the womb Dennis Quaid. Very so young Dennis Quaid, so young. If you if you ever want to just bathe in the majesty of young Dennis Quaid, watch this movie and Breaking Away back to back because it is just <laughs> Dennis Quaid, you're young and beautiful and a Greek god. What happened to you? <laughs> what happens to all of us, Phil? The march exactly. of time. Yes. I mean, you're better off than Randy. But still. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we we get some more. There's a there's a smoke on the horizon. There's another funeral. There's a missing man formation flyover. A picture is put on the wall at the bar. Um, but uh-huh. these these new pilots have have arrived, and it's not just uh, it's not just Gordo uh, Cooper. It's uh, Gus Grissom too. And there's a major bar faux pas where <laughs> where Gordo says, "I how, how does a guy get up on that wall?" No, no, say so maybe maybe one day you'll be putting my yeah. picture up on that wall, <laughs> and then everybody just simply turns Silence. and says, "Oh, you stupid!" And a mm-hmm. word that we can't use. <laughs> oh, maybe we will be putting your picture. Yeah, on the wall. exactly. I, I, I've no doubt that that's likely now yeah <laughs> you are exactly that much of a rube that's amazing 
Dennis Quaid is fantastic in this. This is the ultimate Dennis Quaid yeah. role that that sort of uh, taps into his likable jerkability. Yeah, where, where he, I am just, I am fantastic, and I know it, and I'm going to let you know you're not that fantastic. Yeah. I know, but I'm pretty good. Yeah. Imagine uh, 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 Gus Grissom's. You can't have a, a face that that's that's that lined and weathered and experienced saying those kind of cocky lines but you can have dennis you can have dennis quaid saying it and you know that okay well hopefully he will learn better than this we will find this charming uh, someone who's old uh, someone you don't get old and say lines like that and get one year older than that so that's, that's a really good selection of of, of casting so uh this is you know jaeger jaeger is the king here but there are these new people that are coming in and you know we know if you know anything about history that these are the these are going to be the uh the the future astronauts uh veronica cartwright who graced us with her presence in alien uh which we covered not too long ago is is one of the wives here she's betty grissom yep i should mention barbara hershey who is uh mm-hmm. chuck yeager's wife my note there is literally just barbara hershey wow that's that's <laughs> this is your your this is your barbara hershey golden era yeah uh this and Ho- hoosiers she had a marion ravenwood quality about her in mm-hmm. this movie Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, the demon lives out further past Mach 2, um, and Chuck is going to chase the demon. And then the world changes. We cut to a room in Washington, I guess, <laughs> and a door opens and a kid runs in and says, uh, it's called Sputnik. And they say, we, we know, know, sit, sit down. down. <laughs> I, I enjoyed this bit. I enjoyed that repeating bit. <laughs> yep. That, that, that is a good bit. Um, can we talk about the the, the recruiter just now? Let's recruiter, yeah. let's recruiter. let's talk about it. It's now we're because this is our recruiting. How do we find who will be an astronaut section? So this is this is going to be me as the lonely man in the room. Um, I like Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum and many things. I don't really like them in this movie. I really think tonally, it's it's just it's all over the yard, uh, and. and um, for for a movie that has a great deal of humor here, he, the, they're a little bit out of place and out of time to me. And part of the reason might be um, if the, the, a few years ago, Wired did a oral history of uh, of the right stuff, uh, which is still online, and uh, reading it will actually take you longer than watching the movie. Um, and apparently, if that's to be believed, uh, Goldblum and Shearer had no lines, and if the direction was just, eh, say some stuff. Hopefully, it'll be funny. And I, <laughs> I and and some of it is, and some of it, uh, I I feel sort of breaks the 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 mood of the picture. Just. That's my feeling about those two. It's a bit broad. Yeah, yeah broad. That's my criticism. But but let's recall that their job isn't to carry any of the drama of this movie. Their oh, job no. is they, they got two important jobs that are really really tough jobs to do. One, they're they're laying pipe here. They are basically here to deliver a whole bunch of backfilled information that the audience will, is going to need as we go through the movie. And right. they also need to serve as some of the connective tissue through a section of the movie where they're go the, the story is going all over the place. And if you don't have if we don't have we don't recognize these two guys who are going from hotel room to a place to to an aircraft carrier, 
we're kind of lost and adrift. We, they're, they're, we're, so we're sort of following these two guys around. And so to make them anything more than a bunch of stuffed shirts that are there to, to – here, read this card. Make sure you say that we're at NS Air Force Base now and that this person this person has just set a speed record. Uh, you have to leaven it with some comedy. And it, they do it point. so well in, in, such, in such simple ways. Just, just the – I imagine these two guys just come up with the idea like as they're waiting for – to be told that, okay, the cameras are set. We're about to do a take. Harry Shearer's like, quick, switch coats with me when we get out. I'll, I'll be I'll be putting on your <laughs> coat. You'll be putting on my coat. And it's just the – and how many times have I seen it? I think the last time I saw it was just like years ago. But that's always one of the, sh- the scenes I always think about. Oh, oh, the, and, the other, and the other one, I, I have to I have to say that every time I think that they're, go, they're, they're showing films of different people who they think might be uh, yeah. the sort of people they want to go after. And Harry Sher is now showing a, a, a thing of a, some sort of a stunt driver. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Demolition uh, Derby uh, people and acrobats. Right. And, yeah. just, and they're saying, and they're saying, and, there's, and, the, and, the, line, and the line he says, also, uh, he already uh, he already owns his own, own helmet. I, I don't know if that's a factor <laughs> or not. <laughs> he already owns. I've thought that's one of those jokes I've thought about every month for the, my entire <laughs> life until I die. And honestly, one of the worst portrayals of Dwight Eisenhower on screen. <laughs> if I may just say, outside of Tom Selleck playing him, a very bad Eisenhower, who apparently, if IMDb trivia is to be believed, was dubbed by Kevin Pollack. Yep. His first uh, his first movie yeah. role. I, I think, no, no, I want test pilots. I want test pilots. I don't sound like that at all, says Eisenhower. Imagine if he hadn't had that insight. It would be a very different movie. Yeah, if it was the Demolition Derby people who had yeah. the right yeah. stuff. Imagine. Yeah. I would watch that movie. movie. Or the surfers or the surfers and Demolition Derby. And the acrobats. That's that's yeah, it. Yeah, the guy yeah. bicycling across the tightrope. I want I want the 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 process where they bring in they invite demolition derby people, acrobats, surfers, and test pilots, and they all mix together. And then from that they pick. <laughs> they have to be, and they have to be wearing their stage costumes while they're trying out, like as they're milling about. I I, I want some banditos. I want some people who are dressed up as as, as, as World War One aces. And then they pick seven astronauts, and it's all the test pilots. <laughs> Sorry, surfers. <laughs> it's not gonna. It's it's not gonna happen. Odds were stacked. Against against you we we get you know harry sure and jeff goldblum i think they're fine they're they're scenes that they're in that i really like where i think the tone is right but i sort of i get your point phil that some sometimes i feel like it's coming out of a a entirely different movie i like the scene where they're throwing up on the ship um (laughs) i think that's a really that's a really fun scene and yeah the coat the coat thing is funny but but they're you know getting across that there are this what i like about them and some of these other scenes is how clueless the government is in these early days they know they want to beat the russians but you know all the things we take for granted about how a space program works and how you pick astronauts are uh, it gets across that they have no idea like this is they 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 literally they have no idea what they're doing they're still trying to figure this out they have all these crazy things like uh like using acrobats as as astronauts because they're good at going upside down or something like they they that's what Shearer and Goldblum are to me is they're they're kind of incompetent and uh they represent the whole government uh and bureaucracy you know Phil's right there there is a there's a tonal difference when they're on. I like it. And I also think it's okay, probably because this movie is three and a quarter hours long. If it yeah. were a shorter movie, it would really be disturbing. Mm-hmm. But in, in the overall scheme of things, they're really, you remember them, you know, distinctly. And they don't take up, surprisingly, they don't really take up that much of the movie. I mean, once the astronauts get recruited, they're out. There's also, it's also uh, kind of cool when you compare 
uh, how the, we, we see everything that's going on at NASA. And we, of course, know that or NACA, whatever the whatever the agency was at that point, that, of course, they they have no idea what's going to happen to a human body when they try to put it in space. They have no idea what's what's possible. They have no idea what skills are going to be useful. And so they are like chickens with their heads being uh, heads cut off. But. Uh, meanwhile, all they, all the government knows about the Russians is that they have put, they've put a, a satellite into space. Which we didn't know that, that, uh, that that was, that was going on. And we, we only, we only get reports that there is this mysterious black leather, black, ch- uh, chest, uh, trench coated figure walking in the distance with, with heat waves above him called the chief designer. No one knows his name. They only know that he's bald and really Russian looking <laughs> and that, uh, and that maybe they, maybe they're ready. They're getting ready to do a space platform. that's going to bomb us. They're going to try to seize control of space and they might be so far ahead of us. We can't possibly, uh, we can't possibly keep up. And so on that basis, it's really cool that we show that these are, we've got people who essentially are like, well, what if we were to just like make, a, something like a giant tether ball and put men in it and keep swinging it and swinging it and then like sort of cut the cord and it will fly up in the air and maybe that's how we'll get people into space. That's how, that's how big they want us to think that this is the, the challenge was uh, at this point in the, in, the, in the timeline. Well, they got the rocket scientists. They got the German rocket scientists and our Germans are way better than their Germans. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, the people and, and, the, and the capsule and all that. So the, the next section of the movie is all about the te- testing of the testing of the astronaut candidate. So this is you get the you know you don't want our best pilots, but there's that whole thing about like they they want military and they want them college educated. They're like all these different things that which basically rules out Jaeger. We we see Gus Grissom. We see they they watch John Glenn on TV playing like uh, name that tune. Right, they got um, and and so we 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 meet uh, we meet all of them here. Uh, Sam, uh, not Sam Shepard, Alan Shepard. See, I did Alan it. Shepherd. I knew I do it. It's <laughs> Scott Glenn, not John Glenn, and he's playing Alan Shepard. Uh, they do a lot of like physical tests. There's the they they're they're sizing each other up. They have to blow. They have to keep a ping pong ball in a tube while blowing bubbles, which is a fun scene where they're kind of. Uh, you know, falling out and then, and then is it, it's Dennis Quaid, like who gets to, he just wants to b- break the record. So like he waits a second after he breaks the record and he's like, yeah. And then he looks down the table and, and, uh, and, and two other people, including Shepard and Glenn are uh, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, Glenn, Glenn and Carpenter. It's like patiently. Oh, are just checking, their, checking their watches. Yeah. yeah. M- meanwhile, nurse merch and her mole who I think got separate credit <laughs> are like watching everything just passionately. <laughs> I just, I enjoy the, uh, and also of course the, the inter-service rivalry, uh, between the Marines <laughs> and the Air Force and the Navy. Um, and we should probably discuss briefly uh, Alan Shepard's uh, impressions. Jose Jimenez. Well, so he's doing... It's Bill Dana on the on the Ed Sullivan show doing his Jose Jimenez character, which we can question that. But then... But uh, it, they, they, they put a... La- they hang a lantern on it because they have the uh, Latino uh, orderly or whatever who... yeah. Dis- disapproving of it. Played by pro football great Anthony Munoz. Anthony Munoz. Hall of Famer Anthony Munoz. Not his in. actual voice, uh, who, yeah, yes. Whose voice was that? Dubbed in yeah. by somebody who with a very, Major very <laughs> strange, deep voice that has nothing to do with Anthony Munoz's actual voice. Uh, yeah, so they, they do hang a lantern on that, that he, that, that, uh, I mean, because he's like again, the Jose Jimenez stuff is kind of questionable, and then and then Shepard kind of pushes it even further. But they they do the, all of the uh, all of the uh, Hispanic people are in the elevator with him while while they're going up in the elevator with tubes coming out of their butts. 
in another scene that <laughs> yep. is fascinating. And uh, and they, they you know they they ask they're like your your impression's very good, but what you say is very bad. <laughs> B A D. <laughs> so he uh, he gets the message there, and then he he also uh, does some Gordon Cooper does some sweet uh, talking to the nurse who immediately demands to see his wife. Yes, <laughs> which shows shows the pressure that they're under. Right, like he's like, oh geez, they want to show that I have a stable home life if I'm going to get this job. So he he has to say, we need to pretend. That we have a stable home life, yep. and she, you know, he, she comes out and says, "I, you know, I told, I told them that uh, that we were great. I lied." <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of real truth and a lot of things that they were talking about obliquely, and yeah, their marriage was kind of over with at that point, and they were staying together only because at that point nobody knew what would happen to your career if you are we were an, an ascendant in that in that role as a pilot, and you get a divorce. And so that's why there's a lot of we can fool around, but we can't fool around to such a point that our wives will actually divorce us. Uh, it, it's it's a, it's a tough tough road. Yeah, because they don't know if they if they everybody wants these jobs. So if you're yeah. if you're getting a divorce, do you just or or have been divorced? Do you get thrown out? They don't, they don't know what the issue is going to be. So he's like, let's just not rock the boat, and we'll we'll just uh, we'll just keep doing this. I don't know how you guys feel, but in looking at the runtime and looking at you know my notes being broken down by sort of scene, the whole testing segment of this movie feels really long. And I guess they're trying to get the point across that. We don't know what's going to happen. Like we have to put you through all sorts of stress because your eyeballs might get sucked from yeah. their sockets. But so we're going to shock like, your arm for a while until it's until it's completely numb. Why? I don't know. We'll, we'll see what that does. You're, you're going to love it. We're going to put you on a shaking chair with two fried eggs on your eyes. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> because I, that you might run into that situation in, in space. Over. Anything can happen in space. Some of it is also the building, not only the rivalry but the camaraderie. Right when yeah. that yeah. becomes important later on, very as they much realize so. that they have to band together. Yeah, that that is that's um, something that keeps coming back to me is that they are uh, competitors and they are also a unit. And that's fascinating to me. But I think that I think there there may be a, somebody with no military background. I feel like that maybe is a military thing too, right? It's like you are going to snipe with your 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 compatriots, and you may want to end up doing better than them. But in the end, you're all on the same side, and you're all going to take care of each other. And we see in several instances where they turn on a dime to join up and exert mm-hmm. their own. Uh, authority when they can. We see that back in California with Jaeger and uh, what's his name, the uh, Scott Crossfield. Crossfield, who hits Mach two. Right there's there's rivalry. You know he's he's upset that he didn't get there first, but then there's a congratulatory comment at, kind of at the same time. Right? Does he like eyeball his wife too? That was a little weird. <laughs> he's you're uh, you going know. up. You're going up tomorrow, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going up tomorrow. <laughs> Um, so, so now they, they get introduced and we all, we get this other aspect of it, which is the public relations part of being an astronaut. And there's a, there's a line later in the movie where Dennis Quaid basically says, they, they're going to have, it's at, right at the end. He's like, they're going to build me a house and I get paid by Life Magazine and I get all this money and I haven't even been in space yet. And it's like, you noticed that, did you? Yes. <laughs> uh, but this is it. So, so the amazing thing about this press conference that 
they have is that everybody's doing the like mumbly one word answers. And then John Glenn basically like takes a microphone and stands up and begins to hold court and everybody else is looking like, oh, geez. And but it also kind of gets them all going and they all start doing, you know, saying more things about it. And, and this leads to so there's that. And then there's the meeting with my life magazine where uh, Virgil Grissom wants to be called Gus. And it's like, that's no good. What's your middle name? It's mm-hmm. Ivan. Ivan. Okay, Gus yeah. the astronaut. All right, we're going to do that then. Well, the, the press conference thing also, I think, sheds light on, you know, obviously Glenn goes on to be, have a career in politics. And it's pretty clear why between the, you know, being yeah. an astronaut, he's, he's incredibly personable and well-spoken here. And so you can kind of see, like, he's got that angle played out. I also really, my favorite line from that entire press conference scene is Shepard saying, I attend church regularly. (laughs) (laughs) And the forced grin that uh, that, uh, Scott Glenn does when he delivers that line. Amazing. Regularly. I laughed at that too, Dan. That was so so transparently fake. It was fantastic. It kind of is who John Glenn is, though. They've oh, yeah. earlier on again through, through all the testing. Part of the reason is the reason for the testing was to show everybody here's who these two people are. And of course, it's good for that uh, that that uh, breathing test. It's, it comes down between Scott, Car- Scott Carpenter and John Glenn, and then finally Carpenter like you know is out of air like a half a second before John Glenn said, "Well, I that boy, boy John, you really gave me a run for my money there." Well, I was I was egged on by by you, Scott. And then of course the the toughened more veteran guys were like, "My god, look, it's Archie and Jughead." <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you know that those are the people who would not who would not even like I'm not playing an angle. I I just feel like I'm the Yankee doodleist I've ever felt by golly here here representing America to the space race. Oh, the press conference just has my favorite uh, obvious joke of the movie which the hallelujah chorus playing with the, at the end of it as they're all yeah. doing the lifting hands to the sky and whatnot when you talk about how john glenn is portrayed i think it actually pivots into a really i thought this was a really well done moment which is we we okay he's the guy who was on tv playing name that tune he's the guy who holds court in the conference in the press conference he's archie and jughead right he he is an outsider to some of these other guys who are wilder and then when they have when they all are meeting and all of that and uh, John Glenn's wife like doesn't talk to them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The, to the other wives and and there this is a moment where it like totally plays into like who does she think she is very standoffish John, John Glenn and his wife are obviously you know they don't they think they're better than the rest of them they don't want to be seen with him you can see where that story is going and then you cut to them in in the hotel room afterward and she has a terrible stutter and she can't she and is and is shy and she wasn't being standoffish at all it's a completely different story than the one that you're led to think is going on i i just i thought that was really a really nice double back on the story there i was amused to find out that actress is zoe and emily deschanel's mother wow yes and the wife of uh the cinematographer yes. Uh, yes. Caleb yeah yeah deschanel yeah the other thing about that scene is that it it shows and we see this later on as well that john glenn is not playing the super good guy. He really is. He the really super is. Good guy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when, when he's unguarded, when he's just with his wife, he is just like he is when he's with the other guys. Yeah. And just like he was in the press conference. Hey, Stephen and I talk about space a lot and uh, on our podcast. And uh, I was mm-hmm. thinking of SpaceX in the next se- section of scenes because there's a really nice montage of lots of rockets exploding yeah. <laughs> spectacularly. Oh, um, and, and it's this is a reminder. Hey, you guys are supposed to be riding this. And it's just I mean, it looks like it's it's archival footage, which they were able to do of every rocket just blowing up and occasionally, yeah, you 
you know, and the scientists pressing the buttons to launch things and then watching. And then the one, the one, first off, there's the ones that just light and then just go down, which are so sad. <laughs> and then the ones that, there's the one that goes off and starts veering off course and they have to blow it up. And then there's the one that gets up there and they're like, yeah, it got, oh, and now it is exploded in the air. It's just an amazing yeah. set of like, or, again, or, 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 failure. Or about the one where the, the only thing that happens is like nothing happens. Then they cut to the very, very top and just like the, the, the parachutes just go. <laughs> yeah, it's bad news. Yeah, they had a lot. They had a lot of trouble with those early rockets, and you know when they moved from sub or we're getting way ahead suborbital to actual orbital flights. You know they they increased the size of the rocket, and those were even more failure prone. That's and, what they said to John Glenn, right? Yeah. Is it's like, well, you know, those rockets, they're not. We, yeah. we're... <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Um, I like that they use how they use it in the movie. I mean, they're continuing to drive home that these guys do crazy, dangerous things for a living. But it's it's also an opportunity for them to to band together and and say, you know, there's there's that scene in a little while where they confront some of the engineers, and you can kind of see some of that brewing as they're standing there watching the rockets explode. They sort of stare at disbelief, and then you can see frustration growing in the group. And I think that's a nice uh, it's a nice picture. Yeah. I just really like the one guy who has to press the launch button every single every time. time. Jitter, jittery German man, just yes. press it. Yeah, you know, press today it. that's all done by computers. Like no human touches anything. But then it's like the guy. Like what if the guy sneezes and then hits it like a second later? Does something does something bad happen? No one knows. Yeah, that's how they screwed up all those earlier. <laughs> You have allergies. Get out. You press the yellow button, not that's the explosion button. You're supposed to press the I red said button. lunch, not launch. Oh. Yes. I, I read an article in Air and Space that, without getting too deep into a rat hole, that was really interesting. It, it's, it posited that one of the reasons why the Russians had such a head start was because their atomic weapons were really, really bad and ours were really, really good. So, as a result, because ours were really, really good, they were small and light and reliable, which meant that they developed really, really small, not not terribly powerful rockets in order to deliver them. Whereas the Russians, theirs were big, huge, heavy, and clumsy, so they needed big, heavy rockets, which were already able to launch an actual human into space, because that's how big they were. And because they were such unreliable weapons, they knew that if we want one of these to take out New York, we're going to have to fire like 80 of them. So we're going to have to like man- learn how to manufacture, manufacture, manufacture them in as, as many copies as possible. Uh, and so it was, that was why they were able to do Sputnik first. That's why they were able to do Gagarin's flight first because they were already building. It turns out that uh, if you build a rocket for a crappy uh, nuclear warhead, you're building one for a really good manned space program. The, uh, there's a bunch of, um, we get some beach scenes, um, which is, it's just fun. I, I having been to, uh, Kennedy Space Center a couple of times, and I stayed on on Cocoa Beach at one point, which uh, Ed Harris talks about a little bit. Uh, it's just to give you a little flavor of, especially in the like the '60s in 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 Florida and those sleepy beach towns that suddenly were in the center of the space thing is pretty cool. And there's this set piece that we go to a couple of times. There's a bar with a with a swimming pool window behind the bar, <laughs> um, and and that's where we go next. Where you know Alan Shepard's just he just loves Ed Sullivan. Uh, he's laughing and laughing. But the the point of the scene is largely the groupies. There are, or the uh, they refer to as the cookies at one point. Uh, the woman who says four down, three to go, uh, <laughs> suggesting she has slept with four of the seven Mercury astronauts, which leads into John Glenn kind of kind of lecturing everybody else, all of the other ones, about the playing around that's going on, and. Uh, 
and and the response is strange because so he's basically saying look we we are this is pr and uh if it gets around that we're uh awful tomcatting guys then it's going to reflect badly on the program and on the on the country um the response is is interesting rhetorically because he kind of doesn't address that issue at all he just uh, pivots and is it is it shepherd just pivots into a completely other issue which is the fact that um that the, their job is so simple that a monkey could do it. Yeah, it's including the line and get ready for the bleeping out part because I'll I'll bleep this <laughs> out. The the classic line that made me laugh so hard, which is the issue here ain't the issue here is monkey. <laughs> yes, well, Matt, how can you argue with that logic? The issue here is monkey. Of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, which is not wrong because this is a famous true-to-life complaint that the astronauts had that although they were trained test pilots who were brought in to do this, the job did not require any of their skill at all. It was a capsule essentially made for a monkey. It's automatic. Uh, and that leads to the the real unification after this kind of ugly scene with John Glenn, which is the astronaut rebellion, where they basically tell the, the designers, you're going to give us a window and you're going to give us an <laughs> escape hatch and you're going to give us some controls because we are pilots, not monkeys. Or chimps. Chimps aren't monkeys, but forgive them. They're they're just pilots. The icy contempt with which the engineers just address, there is no hitch. There, there is no window. <laughs> you will call it a spacecraft, not a capsule. The spacecraft is spacecraft, yes. Spacecraft. Yes. <laughs> Before that confrontation, and Jason, I'm surprised that you did not bring this up, given that this is an 80s movie, there is a montage Oh, yeah. And, it, and it's the montage of the astronauts going through their clicking buttons and flipping things around as they're going around oh, yeah. in the centrifuge and flipping up and down. And then, of course, the, the parallel montage of the monkeys doing exactly the yeah. same yes, thing. Yes, that's true. That's true. That's very, well very well done. done. The, 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 uh, the, the soundtrack, by the way, the score here won the Academy Award and it is very 80s. It is. It, oh, it's all over the place. It's I was there's, there, there's a bunch in the, up top that's very, very synthesizer heavy. As it goes on, I felt like it got a little more orchestral. And then later on, I had this in my notes. Um, when I think Glenn goes up, they are using Gustav Holtz, the planets. Yeah. Um, and so, like, it kind of jumps around. But yeah, there are definitely, like, when the Jaeger scenes in the beginning almost sound like Top Gun, <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's the level of synth we've got. We're one step from the danger zone. There's an interesting thing about 80s movies, because um, uh, a couple weeks back, I was watching Chariots of Fire, which, for my money, mm. another. Right. Another underrated '80s movie, but that is again. Vangelis, it, it, yeah, it, it is. It is set in the 1920s, and there, there's Vangelis on his Casio keyboard going. Yep, it strangely works, and it works in this movie. I mentioned Hoosiers earlier. That is a movie where the 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 synthesized keyboard score does not work at all. But getting back to Bill Conti. Yeah, Bill Conti. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he was not the yeah. original choice. I believe if, uh, this is in the Wired um, oral history, or it might be in IMDb trivia. I don't know. I have two sources of information. Uh, but um, the original uh, guy who was um, um, uh, commissioned to do the soundtrack left the movie in a huff after talking to Philip Kaufman. This is a theme with uh, many of Philip Kaufman's movies, but uh, Philip Kaufman said, I want the music to sound like you're in a desert and you step in a cactus. Only the cactus <laughs> grows around you as you step in it. And the guy said, yeah, we're done here. And uh, <laughs> that's how Bill Conti came. And and 
Oh man, I love that soundtrack so much. We have some training montages uh, and other interesting things throughout. That's true. But it is an 80s movie. You need a montage. And the whole thing here is the issue is monkey. Are they men or are they just uh, monkeys, highly trained monkeys riding in an automated space capsule? But again, this is is one of those good moments where they turn and there's another one later where where they basically, they were desperate to get into the program and they would do anything. Like, including drive to San Diego and get their estranged wife and have them come back and pretend (laughs) to be together to get in the program. But now with all that PR, they're stars. And they feel like if they band together, they can make changes. And it's it's fun to see that happen, where the balance of power has now shifted to the Mercury 7. And that happened. That actually really happened. The chimp is shot into space. Chimp. Chimp. First American chimp in space. Ham. We see, but this is another great scene with the Greek chorus of the press, where all you see are these arms and legs and cameras flailing, flailing around, in yeah. one in one big nod. It's like, Mr. Glenn, Mr. Glenn, and you have the one spokesperson who ever gets lines, but you never see them except for there are this one big knot of just grasping, grasping hands. That the, the, the guys who play the press corps were a San Francisco improv troupe. Um, and their other big credit that a lot of them are in is Howard the Duck. And that is, that is the steepest decline in movies. I don't, that, that is like a straight line down. That is not even a, uh, can't even measure the slope there. It's just straight down. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Chimp is shot into space. Meanwhile, Chuck Yeager is having, maybe has some regrets about not being part of all the excitement. We get a Chuck Yeager cutaway. Um, but we have to move on because they got a man up there. It's Gagarin. We know. Sit down <laughs> again. More news from from Russia, and uh, so they and they try to spin it, which is funny. And it's like, oh, well, you know, I'll be forthright, gracious, uh, you know, all of those things. And then the the one guy, the government guy, is like, well, who's going to be the first free man in space, huh? Huh? <laughs> and it's like, no, it doesn't really work. But Glenn says, I'm tired of being forthright and gracious. We need to get we need to get going. And I I laughed a little bit because basically <laughs> the response here is, oh, okay, yeah, let's do it. Like, okay, was a pep talk by the astronauts all that was required to uh, move ahead? And then Gus Gerson's like, say, yeah, hey, Bubba. And then, yep. and then, then John Glenn, because now they're now the, now the Mercury 7 are like really, really tight as a group. And now John Glenn wants to try, yeah, but, but he can't say the word, though. <laughs> Blanking, yes, absolutely, yes. And so it's like, cut to, all right, we're going to do it. And, uh, <laughs> and an astronaut is going to be, they've been keeping it close to the vest, but who's it going to be? And it's uh, it's Alan Shepard, and we get another one of those nice little moments where even though they, these astronauts are are pitted against each other, they also have some respect for each other because uh, Shepard's got there's a sign that uh, joke sign that uh, Glenn <laughs> leaves in the uh, in in the in the capsule, and uh, he says it's not funny, but I you know but I appreciate it, and uh, Glenn says to him via con Dios, Jose as they're loading him in the capsule, which is uh, <laughs> it's pretty great. And then Alan Shepard blasts into space. No, actually. And then Alan Shepard sits in the capsule for hours, begging somebody at back, begging uh, Mission Control to let him pee. That's what happens next. Clamor in the yeah, space program. Real glamour slice. Cutting to another montage of like coffee being poured. That, that's water actually, oh my God. Yeah, that, that is a brilliant, that's a brilliant bit, bit of editing <laughs> it, right there. Is it brilliant? Or, I, I think it, it gilds the lily a little bit. <laughs> well, it's much. from the same movie as the two recruiters. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
the hosing exactly. down of the launch pad. <laughs> the thing that I really like here is the cutaway to we're, we're talking all the wives are together and the, the, there's a media frenzy outside the house and all of that. And and Alan Shepard's wife says. He must have had four cups of coffee before he went to <laughs> yeah. work this morning. That killed me. That was that great. Was a good line. That was really great. We, I, I, I neglected to mention early on the, the conversation with the wives sitting around uh, the line that I like, which again probably has to be believed, is sometimes men can be such... Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't even mention, since we're bleeping things, I, I really love that over an open channel, the first thing that Alan Shepard says in the in the capsule is, Dear Lord, please don't let me fuck up. What was that? What was that? I mean, uh, everything is A-OK I, in here. I didn't, I didn't quite hear you there. there bro. Can you repeat that? Uh, I mean, everything is A-OK. Yep. Uh, they finally let him pee in his uh, spacesuit, though, so that's good. And he and he is the most he makes the most relieved sounds you will ever hear. <laughs> An unfortunate racist joke as well. Yeah, well, yes, yes sure. well, this is true again. Consistent with his yeah, behavior uh, up to this point, actually. True. I've always I've I've always wanted to know if in the control room they really did have like a a light bulb studded diagram of the astronaut <laughs> in his chair so they could trace where the urine was going <laughs> up and down up and down his legs and up his back if so i want a copy of that schematic yeah. so i can have that thing <laughs> i, w- I want to make a version for myself i was a little disappointed when he after he comes on board the ship after they you know pull, pluck him out of the capsule <laughs> when they draw the outlines around his feet. I really want him to walk away and leave like soggy like, footprints. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm expecting it to drip all over. The- <laughs> I, I was definitely expecting that. For everybody just to back off after opening the. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Bit of a smell. So this is one of those moments like earlier where, where it was like, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's launch. Yeah, let's do it. Where it's almost the enthusiasm of the astronauts that cause things to happen in the space program. Because this is like, let's light this candle. Yes, let's do it. Okay. I'll, ten, nine. There's several points. It's like <laughs> yeah. immediately count down from ten, press the button. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lot calmer than you people. Why don't you just solve your little problems and light this candle? Yeah. Boom. So they do. He's right. Correct. Light the candle. So they do, and he he launches, and uh, and in reentry, there's a lot of shaking, and I had that moment of like, oh, see, you've you've been through the high G's and the shaking because you were you made all those ridiculous uh, training tests. So that's all, that's all good. And he gets to uh, he gets to uh, listen to a band play and go to the White House and cut immediate cut immediately from like he look it's possible he's about to die because no American has ever done this before yeah. and then to boop, okay as soon as you survive returning to Earth you are now unto a god yeah mar- so marching so band your first, ticker tape parade first, go to the White step House has to be is going to be commemorative you're spliced into archival footage yeah. and yes. the and the Germans sing some songs that's a, I like that cutaway that meanwhile <laughs> German <laughs> rocket scientists are very happy to sing a song <laughs> yeah you know you when you uh, go into space you, everything that you brought to space with you has value which is why gus grissom has a whole merchandising plan to bring a bunch <laughs> of little objects into space and then sell them upon his return to earth um but gus grissom's mission doesn't go so well no he screws the pooch does he? in the movie he does in the movie he in does movie, i think i think does. the historical record will suggest this is not accurate controversy yeah. yeah the the book was very hard on him as well right yeah, yeah. The, the movie was consistent with the book and i think time i think you know knowledge has sort of 
shifted since the late 70s when the book was written. And At the time, nobody inside NASA seriously believed that he had full, pulled the hatch himself. Yeah. Nobody. As a matter of fact, at the very, very next flight, Wally Schirra did something that I'm not sure if it was even part of the flight plan, but he intent after the after everything was secure, everything was safe after splashdown, he intentionally manually uh, blew the hatch just to show that, okay, here are the bruises, here's the, the damage that will be on your arm if you actually push that button. Uh, and so given that given the complexity of this thing where uh, relays were tripping just on their own because of balls of solder that were just rattling around making contact, uh, it should be known that if anybody's getting some of their history from this, nobody inside NASA seriously believed that it was anything other than a technical malfunction. And when they finally pulled the uh, uh, pulled the uh, uh, the capsule Liberty Bell Seven from the bottom of the ocean, now there's a theory that maybe the housing around the uh, the hatch is what failed, not uh, not explosive bolts. So. Just dis- dissuade yourself of any idea that he might have actually screwed the pooch. You can also see it in his career, which is that he right. w- w- was in the Apollo program, and if he had he was, not he died, was number, one, number one seat in Apollo. Yeah, right? if he had not died in the Apollo one accident, he would almost certainly have been the first man on the moon. So he, right. he his a, career was there's fine. A, and there's a re- there's a reason why Scott Carpenter did not ha- ha- re- <laughs> chose to retire. After his one flight, there is reasons why other other astronauts seriously chose to retire after their first flights. It was because he, the director of astronaut operations made it really clear that, okay, there is no way we are going to let you anywhere near space right. anytime ever. <laughs> so if, if, he had, if he had screwed up, he would not have flown again. Yeah. This is the 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 dissonance uh, section of the movie with uh, <laughs> where it really deviates from reality to to drive home the point it wants to make about again myth baking and yeah. uh, where's my ticker and, tape parade I exactly want a full refrigerator no Jackie which I like I like her outrage there because it's the implication is we got you stuff so you can cook meals in this thing and she's like what what do you cook meals what are you asking me to do here she wants to meet Jackie she doesn't want to be Mrs Squirming Hatchblow. Yeah. (laughs) This episode of The Incomparable does not have a sponsor. In fact, many of our episodes don't have sponsors. And we do this out of love and we appreciate your support. If you would like to support The Incomparable, you can become a member. Go to theincomparable.com slash members and sign up. We've got three different plans starting at $5 a month. There's also an annual plan. Your support can go to all the shows on The Incomparable Network that you listen to. So if you listen to more than just this show, you can check boxes for the other shows and support them too. Or you can just support this show, whatever you like to do. There are a lot of great bonuses that come with Incomparable membership. You get access to a bunch of special feeds There's a bootleg feed that posts our episodes live recordings as soon as they're done being recorded. Uh, That's where our bonus material, including bonus tracks, uh, ends up these days. And there will be a bunch of members-only specials that we'll be producing early next year. And depending on your level, you may also get some stuff in the mail. So go to theincomparable.com slash members if you're not already a member and show your support for the show. And thank you very much for listening. Meanwhile... Back in the godforsaken desert in California, the pilot, test pilots are watching all the coverage and lamenting the fact that these astronauts are really not doing anything more than the monkeys would. And they're uh, kind of defended by Chuck Yeager, which is a kind of a nice, a nice uh, moment in our, in our Chuck Yeager check-in. And then the bar burns down, alas. Uh, John Glenn gets the call. The Russians are orbiting. So they're going to scrap the suborbitals and go for orbit with the... Uh, 
the uh, sort of un- te- not well tested. Uh, it's not been tested, John. Yeah. I know, John. We haven't had a lot of luck with the Atlas. Yeah, but they're gonna they're gonna do it, and uh, and uh, so LBJ really wants to come into John Glenn's house and talk to his wife. There's lots of colorful LBJ dialogue here too. I don't know if the LBJ <laughs> is any better than the Eis- Eisenhower. Phil, what do you think? No, uh, but that's just <laughs> that's just because since then we've had Brian Cranston doing LBJ, and that is gonna that's gonna uh, knock you back a peg or two. This LBJ feels just like a generic Texan in a limo. Yeah, it's basically just look what I brought you. Yeah, it's it's not great, right? No. You get the back and forth where the guy gets sent by LBJ and he's like, the vice president wants to come in. No, tell him no. What do you mean? No, go get. And he goes back and forth. And finally, they get uh, they get John Glenn on the line with his wife. And and the Mr. You know, head of the astronaut program is like giving him the eye that he has to let the, the vice president in. And he just tells his wife, they're not coming in. You tell him that uh, John Glenn, the astronaut, told you it was OK. <laughs> and he hangs up the phone. It's just like a, another great moment where he's like, well, what if I change the assignments and uh, and and you won't get a flight and again they all pull together who are you gonna who, get who are you gonna get yeah that was <sighs> yep. kind of brilliant i like that scene not only that but all the astronauts wives supporting mrs glenn yeah they, now they now they know her now she's part of the group and they know no we're not gonna let you in and yeah we're, they're protecting her as well that's a beautiful thing yeah and capped off by the by the uh the mo- <laughs> mo- juiced of uh lbj's limo quaking and rocking back and losing it in the limo <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I feel like I mean as Glenn as Glenn gets ready for launch I feel like we move into the last phase of the movie. Um and 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 we get a few different elements that get introduced at this point. Gordon Cooper goes to Australia where he, where he's going to because we don't have like a a relay network set up yet so we're literally sending an astronaut to Australia so that we can get some global coverage as as Glenn is orbiting the earth and he he's out in the outback and there are a bunch of Australian uh, aborigines there and he talks to them about space and they point at the sort of elder and say well he knows all about space um, from looking up at the stars and his wisdom and all that, which is, it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting moment. Um, and, uh, and we come back there a couple of times as he talks to him and, uh, and everybody's looking up at the stars. This scene is horseshit. I'm sorry. This is, they really, this is just garbage and it's hippy trippy. Oh, maybe we're all made of stars. Yeah, maybe we are. Just get back to the space stuff, <laughs> dude. And I like this movie. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a uh, yeah. I, I I thought it pushed it a little too far, but um, but uh, the there's also some drama here because there's a question about if the heat, heat shield is going to remain on, and there's a question of what what they tell him. Which um, Stephen, when we watched Apollo 13 for for the liftoff special, uh, I was reminded of that here that this is the debate, mm-hmm. which is if there's nothing they can do, do we tell them that there's a possibility that something has gone wrong? Now, in the case right. of John Glenn, there is something he can do, and they tell him to do it without telling him why and you get it he's kind of got that like okay like he knows something is going on where it's like no we're gonna we're gonna give you control and we're gonna leave those those there and not eject them and and that's a nice back and forth between yeah between the astronaut on the ground and and the astronaut on the ship scott glenn being at his scott glenniest which is they're debating it says he's a pilot you tell him the condition of his craft. Yeah, well, which goes back to the whole test pilot thing, right? This is their yeah. this is the pride of their professionalism here. That that you know they 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 
they need to know. In fact, test pilots, they need to know what's wrong and what the status of their of their craft is. That's part of the deal. But they kind of don't tell him anyway. They kind of still just say, well, let's just leave that on and see what happens. Yeah. And, of course, the first thing, he, he, go, he changes immediately from a, wow, do you, do you suppose these little gadgets might be alive to the steely-eyed missile man professional? All right, I'm going to adjust my attitude to, the, yeah. to, to change my angle to D-steep and XYZ, XYZ, math, math, math. Like, okie dokie. All right. Yeah. At least, at, least, at least he'll be busy while he dies. So there's a there's a dramatic I, and this is what this movie is if it's got a traditional it doesn't have a traditional structure but if it did this is would be the the moment of climax in the movie this is the the fraud <laughs> okay. reentry of speaking 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 of climax yeah well <laughs> so during, yeah, while, while while he's while he's enduring like now he's at wait he's at much he's suffering more g's that than uh than a conventional uh, re-entry and shaking so he starts like humming mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the marine hymn mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and now and now uh back uh, back on, on the radio gordon Cooper has to laugh because he remembers being in the men's room yep on <laughs> the stall next to him while they were have they had to produce a sample a sample during the testing yep. and he was also <laughs> and he had to say yeah he he tends to hum during <laughs> sometimes during stressful fantasization followed by masturbation culminating in ejaculation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's the that's the exciting thing here it's a fraught re-entry but in the end you know john glenn gets a ticker tape parade oh yes he does <laughs> yes he does get a ticker tape parade meanwhile chuck yeager still flying planes He's still out there, still flying planes. Just a reminder, Chuck Yeager, still getting it done, still, still flying planes. Still trying to set the stupidest records in the, the hey, we're going to see how how far up we can fly before we die horribly. Yeah. Still yeah. making 300 bucks a month. We'll check yeah. in with Chuck Yeager one more time, and that's going to be very interesting. But first, this is sort of like in this interesting kind of coda of the movie. Welcome to Houston, everybody. So they're going to start the Space Center in Houston. Everybody in Houston loves the astronauts. They gave them land. They're going to build them houses. They're going to they're gonna give them furniture, all of these things, because they're going to, and to this day, you know, Johnson, now named after him, uh, uh, Johnson. Johnson Space Center is in Houston. Look what I brought you! <laughs> um, great moment in here where a dude walks up to Alan Shepard and says, which one's Glenn? He's the one I want to meet. Oh, people are the worst. First American in space, man. Come on. <laughs> there are lots of people in 10-gallon hats. There's so, my note says so many cowboys. There are a lot of cowboys in this scene. <laughs> lots. Apparently, there are a lot of cowboys in Texas. It definitely feels like the whole Texas scene could pivot very quickly into some sort of cult gathering. LBJ's cult. <laughs> that whole scene is very intense. Here, what we get is another one of those things that Phil probably hates because it's kind of hippie-ish, which is the the uh, ethereal feather kind of stuff is kind of cross-cut with um, the Chuck Yeager, the last Chuck Yeager bit where he takes a jet, a jet out without authorization and they ask him <laughs> and they're like, oh no, I'm sure he's got authorization. And he climbs because he's trying to push the altitude of this jet to the limit and he trying to get to the get to the edge of space yeah yeah and he ends up i'm, uh, I'm gonna throw you a curveball here jason i kind of like this juxtaposition oh look at yeah. that look at you yeah. my so, heart grew three three sizes that so day. yes to fan dancers <laughs> and no to uh australian outback campfires is what you're saying got it Yep. All right. What about fan dancers at Australian Outback? Well, that, I would love to see that. So he flies higher and loses and has to eject. But this is, yeah, right. I mean, this is the kind of culmination of, of we keep wondering about Chuck Yeager, and here he is. He's trying to kind of, 
a, a, on a simple level here, he's trying to get to space to his to own space, way, yeah. right? And it doesn't really well, work. Because you have that nice... I do enjoy the shot of him catching sight of the stars, right? Mm-hmm. As he's yep. just about at the, you yeah. know, the top of his flight there. And it's like, you, you know, this is as close as he gets to get because he wasn't picked. Very, very Icarus-like. It's Moses being allowed to look at the promised land, but not actually uh, getting to... To go there maybe he just thinks if i fly high enough maybe i can actually get this yes yeah. <laughs> don't do that it's bad that's bad it's not gonna do work that. in the book the the parallel program of flying planes into space was talked about a lot and you know kaufman wisely cut it out of the movie because it was already three hours long and it would have gone forever but th- this is one of the little bits that you get that is you know very prominent in the book is the continuation of what's going on at edwards and and this parallel program, and, and uh, uh, who is it? Uh, David Clennant, the uh, is the actor. The, the you know, there's also a, a bit of dialogue where he talks about um, the, the, the money's being cut off. There's the last and, of its kind, I guess. Because yeah. right now, it's ast- the, the astronauts have the only ticket to space. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone entirely to- toward the NASA thing, and that's just that's just a, a small bit of what was a, a pretty big part of the of the book. Yeah. Which is interesting, too. I was thinking about from the perspective of today, where it often feels like the tables were flipped again. And, you know, a lot of money gets devoted to, you know, certainly military jet planes and less in my, in many ways to space exploration. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you can't help but, but really be impressed by just the, the contrast where you have this every time they launch an astronaut into space in the movie – it's a point of here are the number of people it takes just to get him into the cockpit. Here are the number of people that are just standing by to put out the fires. Here's the number of people in the control room. Here's the number of people. Da, da, da. And uh, of course, when you have these planes, it is a, a man has what walks, walks to the plane, climbs up the ladder, mm-hmm. radios the tower to ask, okay, is there anybody in front of me that I'll crash into? Wants to say, nope, there isn't. Go Godspeed, and they just simply take off as a one person who's controlling every aspect of this flight. There is no whereas the astronauts are in a position where if something goes wrong, they're there to take over the controls and fix it. There is nothing that happens inside that plane. So of course, it's this lonely project. Uh, the, the desert couldn't possibly be a more evocative place for the stuff to happen yeah. because it is going to be Chuck Yeager. He's the only person who can get himself up there. He's the only person who can get himself back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you can contrast that, particularly with these scenes in which it's not just the uh, the Mercury 7, but you've got these hundreds, if not a couple of thousand people in this big uh, this big auditorium, all these lights and all this all these noises, and you have this moment where, and maybe this is a little bit of a hippie scene, in which suddenly like each one of the astronauts, while the Sally Rand was doing is doing the dance seems to like hear like this sound that only the astronauts can hear and get distracted while Jaeger is in trouble or, or, or approaching the veil of space saying that there is still that one thing that's going to connect everybody. Uh, and then when, uh, and then when uh, uh, Gordo Cooper is getting that f- f- finds that, that 28 cents worth of maturity that he has, and he's asked, you know, who's the best? Hey, hey, Gordo, right. who's the best pilot you ever heard of? Well, I'll tell you, that's the best pilots or they're just pictures on a wall somewhere. And actually, the wall isn't even there anymore. And then hmm. he's finally knocked out of his referee. Oh, best pilot in the world. Well, you're looking at him. 
yeah, it's 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 a much bigger scene at, at perfectly the right place in this movie uh, than it might have appeared in the page. Love it. Yeah, it's uh the the I, I want to go back for a second to what you said about uh, that Alan Shepard scene. The the juxtaposition there, the 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 solitary again. This is the guy who was riding on a horse earlier, right? This is the cowboy. This is he is out there alone. Uh, doing all of that, like literally not authorized, just <laughs> puts his jet out there and says, I'm going to take off now. And uh, and you compare that to everything that, that goes into that. He has freedom in a way that the astronauts don't, but they're the ones yeah. who get to go into into space and, and, and he doesn't get to go there. And I, I was going to mention that scene with Gordon Cooper because that's a really nice callback because they make that joke earlier that you're looking at him and he and he gives a, that little speech of like, you know, so and he's interrupted by the press, which I actually kind of yeah. like, like they, they don't, you know, he's trying to give a speech and they're like louder they want, they want the sound bite yeah they were the feeding him a line for exactly and, line back and yeah. he finally gives it to him but at this point he's like you know some of them are pictures on a wall some of them are in this room and some of them are out there doing what they always do and he's saying you know it's the dead guys yeah. it's the astronauts it's the test pilots who are still flying all of those people are great pilots and then he gives them what they want which is oh you're looking at them um, but that's 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 all this is the big wrap-up of the movie is all those things kind of kind of going together leading to that last sort of proper scene in the movie which is that they have to wake. We've seen throughout the movie that Gordon Cooper can sleep anywhere, uh, including in ridiculous test circumstances. And the payoff is that they have to wake him up so that they can launch him into space because he's fallen asleep <laughs> in his capsule. Yep. Love the bit when uh, it's 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 Jaeger uh, uh, post-crash walking down the <laughs> runway right. with the smoke coming up. And is that a man? You're damn right it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And uh, uh, the I believe that the the actual um, cut on the soundtrack is called Jaeger's Triumph uh, <laughs> uh, that they play throughout that and the um, the end of the movie with with uh, Gordo going up in space. I mean, anytime you you walk out to meet your ambulance is a is a pretty <laughs> well, sure, moment. sure, especially when you're like actively on fire as he apparently <laughs> yeah <laughs> covered covered in jet fuel and oil. <laughs> And there, so there's a little coda at the end, which is kind of funny because it's uh, basically, hey, and uh, yeah, Gus Grissom got killed in that accident. But hey, before that happened, Gordon Cooper uh, went 22 orbits and is the last American to go into space alone, which is a very strange little bit of trivia. But there it is. Uh, and for a brief moment, he became the greatest pilot anyone had ever seen. And that's the end of uh, of the right stuff, which I thought I thought was a little bit of a strange ending uh, that maybe wasn't necessary because of everything well, else that we got. a little bit strange. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure how they could end it because it, it's either the, the astronauts will be back in Gemini. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the challenge, right? That if you if you look forward to Gemini and Apollo, you diminish what these guys did in a way and that you, the movie wants these guys to be the stars. And so I think backed into that corner, it ended kind of the only way that it could, but I agree with you. Like from the Hollywood perspective, it's a little strange. I like that. It makes a nice triptych with, uh, you've got the right stuff you've got from the earth to the moon. You've got Apollo 13 and there is like, there is sort of a through line through a lot of those, which I, I kind of appreciate. Like it, it kind of forms sort of a rough chronicle of this these different aspects and periods in the space program. I don't know. I, I a, mo- a more modern movie, which this isn't, and it's not going to be. But I, I, I kept thinking when they wake gordon cooper up so that they can launch him and he launches into space i kind of feel like that's the end of the movie I, i'm not sure we need to have the first off like a footnote about gus grissom and what happened to him 
Um, although he, you know, that 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 is notable in terms of the the seven. And then and then we go back to Gordon Cooper, sort of as if he's the main character of the movie, which I'm not sure I would completely invest in that um, so that we can wrap up his story at the end like that. So I don't know. I kind of liked how it ended with the, you've got the the cutting back and forth and the feather dancing and the, and and Chuck Yeager and all of that. And then they wake up Gordon Cooper and he gets shot in space. The end, like I I thought that would, would have done it. It's, it's fine, but I just find the coda a little unnecessary. I think Kaufman is trying, is trying to do, he has three characters in mind. There's a Yeager who's the forgotten man and there's uh glenn who's the chosen man right. and uh cooper is the man who rises to the occasion where he starts oh, off yep. the movie as a as a pud knocker and yep. uh 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 by the end he's giving that speech that that uh uh tiptoes gingerly towards humility so i i think that's what he's trying to go for and i'm, I'm not sure it's entirely successful but um i Again, I appreciate the kind of here are these three figures and we're going to tell the story through them. Mm. Also, the, uh, he is the first of the Mercury Seven that we meet in the movie. So it's you, you got to go out on his ascension into into space. Um, although it's it's it bears. Well, that, some, that, that's Chekhov's space program, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you, you think about how uh, this was this when this movie was released, it had been forgot the the the, uh, the shuttle program hadn't released become operational yet uh challenger was still about four or five years away and i think that people we, there were so many triumphs uh, that nasa accomplished uh during all of apollo uh and to, even through mercury with the with the exception of apollo one that i think people had forgotten that no no no, this isn't you this isn't you they drive into the car they they, they get into the car they turn the key and unless there's an accident everything's going to be okay it they i think everybody needed a reminder that this was every second there was again just one loose ball of solder somewhere in that spacecraft floating and floating weightlessness if it simply bumps against the re- the, the contacts in a relay boom they're dead so they needed to be reminded that this was a very very difficult thing that they were being asked to do so what did everybody think uh dr drang what's your overall take on uh on the right stuff well i i really i i think the book is better than the movie but i really do like uh i really do like the movie um there are I think there are interesting politics in the movie. I think this is very much a movie of the Reagan era, uh, even though you know, there, are, there are plenty of cynical parts in it, but there is this sort of overarching patriotic aspect to it that kind of fits in very well with the, uh, with the morning in America time. Uh, I, I remember distinctly at the time um, people thinking – that this movie might have an effect on the presidential race, or at least the Democratic primary uh, that was coming up the following year, uh, because uh, John Glenn, yeah, Scott Glenn was running. No, John Glenn was running. <laughs> Scott Glenn. <laughs> there was there's a lot of menace in Scott Glenn. Um, so it was kind of interesting, and I remember a cartoon, a political cartoon of the time where uh, people are coming out of a movie theater and there's a marquee behind it saying it's, they're, they're, obviously they're coming out of the right stuff. And the, the character is saying, well, that, that decided it for me. I know I'm who I'm going to vote for, Chuck Yeager. <laughs> and, and that's – so it, it, there was a lot of talk about the movie having some, some effect and obviously it didn't. Uh, one of the things that I really like about the movie is the unusual casting. 
And, you know, Phil mentioned uh, uh, Levon Helm, which is, I think is an unusual choice. I don't, I don't sure. rem- remember him being in a movie before this. He may have. I mean, he's been in movies, certainly, but this may have been the first one. And he's not given a lot to do, but he does it well. And he, and he does the narration part. Um, uh, you know, Anthony Munoz, well, that's kind of a weird thing. And I don't think that was very successful. There was the obvious stunt casting of Chuck Yeager uh, as a bartender uh, at, the, at the Happy Bottom. There's a, there's a great scene, uh, actually very well, he's very well used. So when Harry Shearer and uh, David Clennon are talking about who gets to go and, you know, Jaeger doesn't fit the profile because he doesn't, he doesn't have any college. Um, the real Jaeger is looming over them in the background and, and kind of looking askance at them, uh, which is pretty funny. Uh, Steven, what do you think of this one? No, I'm I'm predisposed to enjoy space movies, but I think the the length of this movie and and some of the pacing really aged it for me. Where I I didn't I didn't particularly enjoy, especially the middle part. You know, after we get to know them and they're doing all the testing and everything, like I said earlier, really felt like it drug on. I think I would have liked it a lot more if it had had been more. Um, more compact and more economical in the story that it told. That said, um, I do think it did a good job. And the thing that I walked away enjoying, and it's the thing that I enjoyed from the book is seeing the relationship between seven guys who, who really are, they're not only competing for a job, but they're competing for space in the history books, right? The first guy who goes up, the first guy who makes an orbit. These are the names that we remember. And even of these seven, only a few of them, are names that, you know, maybe anything close to household names at this point. And it's, it's the guys who are in the history books. And if you made one of those flights that was a repeat of something that someone else had done before, you kind of get forgotten a little bit. But in despite, despite of all of that, that they do band together and they do stand up to NASA and stand up to engineers and stand up to their bosses and say, look, this is the way that we're going to do it. You chose us to do a job. Let us do that job. Um, that's That story always gets me, and it's always something that I enjoy in, in reading and or watching anything about this era in NASA history. But I think that this particular example is is a little long-winded for my taste. The young people today with their movies, it's all cut, <laughs> cut, 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 cut. <laughs> Well, it does. It does feel. I mean, it is of a style. This is an epic. They still make really long movies. They do, but this this has that feel of 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 something epic in scope and and willing to take its time with a lot of it. And I think there. I agree that there are places where it sags a little bit. Um, it just. It they don't make them like this anymore. That is for for sure. Um, Dan. What's your take on the right stuff? Yeah, epic is a good word for it, although I think it it lacks the strong through line of a lot of other sort of epic movies. Someone in the in the chat room mentioned Lawrence Arabia at sure. the top, uh, which is one of my favorite movies. Absolutely. Which, you know, it has a, a much stronger sort of plot line than this does. And, um, you know, obviously, you always run into trouble in both of those cases adapting something that is, that is uh, you know, historical. Um uh, you're also challenged here because you're dealing with essentially seven or eight guys as opposed to one person mainly. Um, I, I agree with Stephen that at times it feels kind of long-winded, and some of it is just that the structure of it is a very, very strange movie. It feels like a loose series of vignettes, 
you know, sort of hung together. And as, as Phil pointed out earlier, it's also, there's like some weird tonal shifts, you know, with the broad comedy versus, um, you know, the very serious uh, sort of uh, historical impact of it. So I, I felt very mixed up, but I, I enjoyed it overall. Uh, I like some of the comedy because it does lighten what could otherwise be kind of dreary at times, especially for a movie that is has aged in this way. Um, I think it's a movie that is is long, and yet some of that length probably could have been filled better. <laughs> Because, you know, I think about some of the long lingering shots on, on Jaeger in the, in the desert. And it's like, I, I, I appreciate the story of Chuck Jaeger. Um, but perhaps there is a better way to use that time, even if you wanted to maintain sort of the longer epic feel to it. Um, uh, I came, you know, having never seen it before, uh, I came in with my knowledge mainly of the space program from like other, other sort of dramatizations. And, um, I, you know, was interested to learn a little bit more in some stuff that I definitely didn't know uh, about the development of this period in the, in the space program. Um, but it's uh yeah, it's overall, uh, I would give it a thumbs up and I, I would be very positive about it. Um, but it, it is definitely a movie of its time, as I think Dr. Drang said, and it, it sort of resonates in that way um, because it has that sort of specific, not only the filmmaking, but just the, the sort of mood and tone of a lot of it. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it certainly deserves to be, to be seen and it's a, uh, a, a solid film. Andy, uh, judging on everything you've said tonight, you don't care for this movie very much, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's, it's still one of my favorite movies. Um, and, uh, when I first saw it, I didn't know very much about the space program. Uh, so it's not as though I was coming in, like seeing, <laughs> ticking off. Okay. I, I hope we get to see the, uh, the point in which, uh, Wally Shara like blows the hatch. Like, okay. I, I, oh God, we didn't get to see that. Um, I, I see, um, everybody's in, uh, I, I'm, I, I disagree with the, uh, I did not have the same experience of thinking that it was too long. Um, I can't help but think of, uh, uh, Roger Ebert's famous line that no, uh, good movie is too long. No bad movie is short enough. Uh, I think that this is, as long as it needed to be for the tone that it wanted to adopt. I think that they made it really, really clear from the very beginning of this movie that this is not going to be uh, an action movie. This is not going to be one where we're going to uh, – we're not going to linger over things. We're not going to give the actors time to have their pauses and just look at each other. Um, we're going to make sure that you understand this world that we're going to uh, throw you into for the next two or three hours. Um, and it's it doesn't mean – if you – Thought that was too long. Of course, that doesn't mean that, uh, gosh, you don't appreciate, uh, you know, long form storytelling or you don't have the ability to pay attention to, to maintain focus. I'm just saying that I didn't have that reaction. Um, if, um, I really liked every, uh, every part of this movie. Uh, I though I don't deny that there are certainly scenes and entire sequences that could have been removed, but as I'm listening to everybody else talk about that, I was trying to think about is there any character that I would, I wouldn't miss if this were edited for television and to get it under two and a half hours, but they, let's say they moved this subplot or we didn't get to see the nurse or we didn't get to see the training part of it. I would really miss having seen that. And I think that owes to the fact that they really allowed every single character to just not be a background disposable character. Even the, or we talked about the, 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 or, the Mexican orderly, uh, during the, uh, during the, the, the physicals, 
it could have been just like the big let's just get somebody who is brown and that way we can make the joke about oh gosh they're saying they're making jose jimenez jokes and they shouldn't be doing that they gave him lines to real and they put him in a situation where he is absolutely in he owns this scene of just walking these two astronauts all the way back to where they're finally going to get some relief from this thing that's been shoved up their butt <laughs> and also they've given they've given him a scene that believe it or not it's it's that one line at the end of that scene where Shepard is, of course, like a child, both in stature compared to the orderly, and also the idea that he's he's about to you know drop his pants, uh, saying, "Am I? How am I doing? Am I going to make it?" Yes, I think yes, man. I think you're going to make it. You're going so to that, be an astronaut. Yeah, yeah. And in. so yeah, so so that, that's that's what that's what I'm getting at. If you were there's nobody who's disposable. Uh, again, there are things you can cut, but there's nobody that is like okay. Well, there was no point to that. So as I'm saying, I I just I'm very very happy to have spent three hours in the world that these people created because they decided that. I think they had an awareness that we're going to, we're asking, we're asking three hours of these people's attention. We don't want to waste any of that time. And we don't have to do that by having things explode every 30 seconds. We don't have to have all kinds of trumped up drama, but we have to make sure that whatever we put on the screen, there is a high level of craftsmanship and people don't feel as though that time they spent watching that character was wasted. So no, I, I, I thought it was really wonderfully done. Uh, I'm very happy to exist. I do think the special effects uh, stand up very, very well. Uh, I remember reading an, uh, the, 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 the big uh, issue of uh, Cinefx that talked about uh, the, the effects. And <laughs> my, my, as a kid, my head programmed with all, all the techniques that went into Star Wars and that went into Alien and all these other movies. I say, well, no, we just basically flew these things against the sky <laughs> at very, very high speed. And then we slowed it down. So, oh, so that's why the planes look so good, because you actually put planes. Yeah. OK, mm -hmm. OK, that worked. So yeah, I, I've uh, I have it on Blu-ray, and when if it, if they release it in 4K, I will be the sucker who buys it again in 4K because, uh, <laughs> I, and I will watch every single bit of it. Now, Phil, we uh, when we started, we already said up front that this is. Uh, you think this is a, an underappreciated uh, one of the best films of the 80s? So I, I guess yep. you haven't changed your mind since we started. Nope. Okay. Nope. Good. Flawed mo flawed movie. Great movie. Yeah. It should be pointed out. I don't think the '80s was a great decade for movies, well, but uh, <laughs> what can what can you do? You you, you can only uh, play against the teams they put in front of you. And uh, Raging but, Bull, yeah. Well, no, the the ones that are good are good. Raging Bull, Amadeus, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This one, right stuff. Uh, it's all good. So the uh, I Blade think, Runner. I think one of the things about this uh, about this movie too is that it it allows. Uh, and now 35 years old, basically, uh, it, it is fixing a point in history that it was 20 years removed from itself when it was made. But this is one of those things where it, it allows us to access what it was like on the frontier of uh, space and finding the people who were going to be the astronauts. And uh, I love that this movie exists in the world because it's a it's an accessible way for people to look at um uh, how how we got 
to our astronauts and started the space program. And as a, you know, it's a period piece uh, from uh, 20 years ago about something that happened 50 years ago and or, or 30 years ago about something that happened 50 years ago. And uh, I'm glad it exists in the world for that reason, that that uh, instead of just saying, oh, yeah, they pick some astronauts like you can see who those people were like, who were yeah. what they were like, what it took, who, who had the right stuff to to climb in these ridiculous contraptions and risk their lives. And, and that's you know, I think that I think there's great value in, in, in having a document like this. It's not a documentary by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a movie you can point to and say, well, if you want to know how that all came together, here it is. This has been great. Thanks to my uh, to my panel for joining me for this one. Dan Morin, thanks for being here. Uh, it was my pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you in space. Excellent. Dr. Drang, thank you. Well, thank you. I'm going to close up shop here and get me a stick of Beeman's. All right. <laughs> Stephen Hackett, thanks for being here. Thanks for letting me pee in my suit as I sit here. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Anako, thank you. It's called Sputnik. We know. know. And Philip Michaels, of course, thank you. Well, it seems that we're coming to the end of another podcast. A little bit of a disaster along the way, but I'll get you there in time. And uh, Just sit back and good night, everybody. (laughs) And I'm Jason Snell. The issue here, remember, the issue here is monkey. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 